Welcome to the Archive Room podcast. Master Mai, Judith Lay here, once again opening the door to the Archive Room, Manx Radio's treasure chest of stories of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. So, come on in, and let me take you for another gentle stroll down Manx memory lane. Tonight, Donald Gelling admits there's nothing in life quite as scary as a girl with a hockey stick. And the taste of flitters and not getting the cane are all topics in Donald's archive conversation with David Collister. But first, if you've ever wondered what's the most economical way to take your barrel organ into town, well, wonder no more. Because here comes someone who can tell you. Making his first appearance in the archive room, it's transport expert Robert Hendry. Robert Hendry and a little bit more of the lighter side of Manx transport history. In the old days, if you wanted to send your goods, you used to send them by rail. And the railway company had a fleet of a couple of hundred wagons, which were quite extensively used for carrying every sort of goods from coal to road rollers. Now, the railway had a book of rates and regulations, And looking through the rates and regulations can be a fascinating pastime. A bicycle accompanied by the owner was sixpence. A bicycle not accompanied by the owner was a shilling. Now, if you wanted to send your barrel organ by train, which you had to accompany, it was a shilling. Now, what about a farmer? Well, they were well catered for. You could send your chaff cutter, your hay cutter, your turnip slicer, your churn, your mangle or your similar light and fragile machine, when unpacked, at your own risk, let it be added, at just one and threepence. Well, what happens if you wanted to send live ducks, fowls or rabbits? Well, that was no problem at all. For a goose or a turkey, sixpence. For two geese or turkeys, eightpence. For three geese or turkeys, tenpence. Above three geese, you got a a concession rate of threepence a goose. Now, long ago, on the Manx Northern Railway, there was a farmer who didn't really like the idea of having to pay for his pig when he went to market. And it occurred to him that a passenger was allowed so much free personal luggage. So one day he turned up at the station with the piglet under his arm. The booking clerk said that it would be so much for the pig, and he explained that the pig was hand luggage. The booking clerk was a little nonplussed at this because the man hadn't got any other hand luggage, but he didn't think a pig counted as hand luggage. So, ultimately, as the man was going to Ramsey, he spoke to the guard, and the guard arranged to speak to the manager of the then Manx Northern Railway Company, John Cameron, who pointed out to the farmer that a pig could not possibly be hand luggage. Thank you, Robert Hendry, transport expert and key figure in the preservation of the railways. And there'll be lots more railway-related nostalgia in future programmes, in anticipation of the two big anniversaries coming along in the next few months. The 150th anniversary of the Isle of Man Steam Railway and 130 years of the Manx Electric Railway. But now, let's eavesdrop on quite a different conversation. David Collister chatting with Donald Gelling. Born in 1938, David was interested to discover just how much Donald recalled of those early years. Well, born in 38, 
My grandfather died in 39, so obviously I have no memory whatsoever of my grandfather Gelling. But my grandmother Gelling, um, she was certainly there and she was all to the fore because uh, my father went away to the war. He actually volunteered and joined up. He had no need to do so because he was working on the farm. But he didn't actually want to work as a a farmer. And he was the first really to break away from the farming uh, family, if you like. Uh, He always wanted to be an engineer. And he had gone away to fight in the war. So I was left with my grandmother, my mother, and my older sister. So I was very much dominated by um, ladies and girls in the house. But uh, my memories probably go back to walking down to Port Grenick with my grandmother. Every day she would walk down and she would make her way to the tide. She would take off her shoes and she would put her feet in the water, in the salt water, uh, sitting on the rock. And uh, then we would take flitters yeah. off the rocks and you had to knock them off quick, otherwise they grip. <laughs> and she would bring them up home and uh, she would cook them. I used to think they were tasting, well, they didn't taste very much, but they were like leather. But that was what they had to do, of course. Anything that would make soup or you know help with stock for broth, uh, this is what they did. So my earliest memories would be actually walking down as a very small child down to Port Granick, which is only 500 yards, but nevertheless, that was a journey that uh, we would do pretty well every day. I recall as well that every week at the weekend you'd go into town, and of course the market was uh, flourishing at that time in Douglas because you would bring in your homemade Manx butter, your vegetables and whatever you had, and uh, you would sell them. And then, of course, you'd go and buy your shoes or your clothes or whatever was needed so there was very much uh, the case of uh, the weekend was the time when you sold and you purchased I can well recall uh, when we had the internees over here during the war it was always very strange to me as a kid because they always appeared to have plenty of chocolate and plenty of sweets but all they wanted was butter and stuff off the farm. And uh, they were very eager to trade because they used to go out and work on farms, of course, uh, from Knockailo and all. And uh, they were always uh, eager, and we were just as eager as kids to get some of the the chocolate or whatever because uh, we we never seen it, you know, generally uh, in in the shops. We we had basic food, really, at that time, but I honestly don't remember ever being hungry as a child, do you? No, no, but of course... My mother and my grandmother, and thankfully Joan, have all been excellent cooks. And, of course, they're able to make things out of nothing. (laughs) They would certainly make a chicken go through all its processes before the the bone was left on on the line for the birds to pick what was left. And there was very little left. But uh, certainly they, they would conjure up broth and soup and all kinds of things that I never, as you say, uh, ever was hungry. And of course, let's face it, we were fit because we had to walk everywhere. We had to walk all the way up to the train. Uh, There was no cars or anything. And uh, working on the farm, even as a kid, uh, in the summer holidays, you know, the the six or eight weeks holiday Mm. weren't spent sitting at home on the sofa watching telly or something. And they were thinning turnips or picking potatoes and I must admit that that's what put me off farming. <laughs> which farm was it you you were picking spuds for then? On Glentraw, right. which of course was my grandfather and great grandfather. That was the 
the farm, Glentraw, and yeah. then, of course, he built the new house at the turn of the century up at Glengrenick. The idea was wonderful. It was uh, 19 rooms as a, a guest house for North of England businessmen's families to come over. Oh, yeah. And, of course, uh, four boys in the family, four girls. The girls were looking after, this is my grandparents, yeah. were looking after the house, feeding the guests, and the boys were on the farm providing the produce. Right. And, of course, it was uh, an excellent country type of guest house at that yeah. time, but uh, we didn't have uh, water, we didn't have piped mains water. That didn't come down to Port Grenick until, I think it was around 53, 54. Oh. So it was all out of the well. And, again, that was a big job on a, a weekend, usually a Sunday night, was to pump from the well up into the big tank up in the roof Oh, space yeah. right and you virtually pumped up there gosh i don't know how many i remember taking the tank out and it must have been uh somewhere in the legion of about i would have thought 200 300 gallons yeah the tank was actually up in the very top of the house oh, right yeah. up at the very top and the well was underground okay. we were very fortunate the pump was actually in the kitchen yeah. So you were pumping in the kitchen, at least inside. Oh, right. But uh, I'll tell you, you built up some muscle. Yeah. And was that water then good enough to drink? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it was beautiful. It was crystal. You know, when you look at water and it sparkles, you know that's clean. There was a little cafe. It was like a log cabin just up at the top of Port Grenick. A lady, spinster lady, ran it as a cafe in a little shop. And uh, my job used to be every weekend again to go up and with a bucket take water out of the river and fill her big tank full of water that would do her for the whole week. Yeah. Now, you know what I mean? If you went and looked at that stream now, you wouldn't no, take a bucket no. of water out. No. But uh, certainly then it was sparkling clean because the only thing that went in it was runoff rain coming out of the fields, you know, no. but now you wouldn't know what was in it. Do you remember your first day at school then? Yes, Santon School, uh, wonderful school, but of course in them days you did spend all your time at that school unless you got to the high school or, or whatever. Mm. It was again a walk, a walk of about a mile and a quarter every morning and back every uh, night and I had a pal whose family had moved in to Glentraw after our family had left, Castains. Will Castain was my buddy, he was... A bit older than me, but we were of the same age, virtually started at the same time. Yeah. And we used to walk up every morning, up from Port Grenick, up to school and home at night. And uh, that was the case until his family, of course, moved over to Colby. Mm. And, of course, the Castains are a very well-known Colby family. But, in fact, Will and the girls actually started their life yeah. at uh, Port Grenick. Yeah. You used to walk up to school in the mornings and would be drenched. You'd absolutely be soaked through. And, of course, there would be a big fire burning, a huge big fire. And all your coats were all draped around chairs around the fire so that they would be dry by the time you went home. But, uh, as I say, it was a very comfortable school, a very nice school. And when my father came home from uh, the war in 46, 45, 46... I wondered who on earth this man was that suddenly came into our house and started telling me what to do. Strange feeling, really, because the bonding had not happened, really, no. uh, because it was my mother and my grandmother, and my sister was a nurse. She was living in the nurse's home. Um, 
you know, but she was doing a training at Nobles. So suddenly he came home, didn't think my education was uh, progressing as he would have expected. And uh, I used to go into Douglas, in fact, not very far from where I'm talking to you, David, to a lady who was a music teacher. Yeah. In fact, I think she was just across the square here from where we are. So that being Queen's Avenue. Yes, yeah. and uh, every Saturday morning when my mates were all in our front field playing football, I was in on the train to go and do piano lessons. And I must admit, I hated it. So we'd done a deal. My father took me away from Santon School, sent me into Murray's Road, and I gave up music. <laughs> that is how I went to Douglas High School. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. if I'd have stayed at Santon, of course, I would have gone to Castle Russian. Yeah, of course. Where yeah. the others went. So right. in that respect, uh, probably a lot of my pals went in a different direction. So school-wise, um, I was probably the only one heading in to mm. Douglas mm. in the morning. And again, uh, going into Murray's Road, it was on the train. And then you had to walk from there up to Murray's Road. Uh, but my sister, in them early days, of course, was going to Park Road School. Yeah. So oh, right. you walked up with her. And, what did uh, you do at lunchtime at Murray's Road then? You had oh. your packed, as they would say today, your packed lunch. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. we had our sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> our pieces, some of the uh, right. lads used yes, to Yes, a jam piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Douglas High School for boys then. Which teachers do you remember from that? Probably the ones that stand out in my mind is a gentleman called Shackleton. Oh, Shacky, the woodwork yes, master. Absolutely. Yeah. Harry Carr, he, he stood out. Corlett, Bob, Bob Corlett. Corlett from Peel. Right. Yes, a science, was he? Yes, but I remember him because he was the deputy head. And if you misbehaved, of course, you were sent to the deputy head to get the cane. And were you? Just once, but it never happened because it was rather a strange occasion. There were three of us sent, three of us sent to the <laughs> deputy head. A guy, I'm sure he won't uh, mind me mentioning him, David Jepson. Good sportsman, good badminton player. In fact, one of his sons was an RAF pilot. I think he was uh, flying one of the Red Arrows. But anyway, he was a, a tough man, as they say. And you used to have to stand just in the doorway of the corridor mm. because Bob used to, you know, his cloak over his arm, he used to take a big, long, sweeping stroke. Yeah. And as he came down... David Jepson shot out of the door with the stick following him and it never caught him and Bob Corlett was so shocked. Jepson never stopped. He was still going down the corridor that he sent us two back to the class. He was he just couldn't control himself because... Uh, uh, but that's the only time. But uh, as yeah. I say, they were good days. You know, to be honest, as a country lad, you went in then on the bus. You came home on the bus. If you were late home... You had to explain why you were late. Were you in detention? What had you done? You had misbehaved. You've let the family down, you know? Yeah. So invariably, you would rather take a couple of strokes of the stick or something other than being in detention. Detention was the last thing you would want because it would then be disclosed to your family and you would get into more trouble when yeah. you got home. But as I say, I, I don't think it ever done us any harm. It certainly give a lot of rick, as they say, on the pupils. But, uh, but there was good fun. Uh, some, some of them teachers, um, after left school, used to bump into them oh, and they, 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 they used to still keep track on pupils, certain pupils yeah. in the school, they would say, have you seen this fellow or that fellow or whatever? Well, it would be Bertie Reed, I suppose. Bertie Reed, do you know, I met 
a lady up at the hospital. I was having a cup of tea and she came and sat down and she said, do you know who I am? And I said, I do indeed. You're the Reverend Bertie Reed's daughter. And it was Miss uh, Geraldine Reed that was, who, of course, married the um, TT rider. Campbell, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we had a long conversation, must have been 40 minutes, about Bertie, and I was telling her that the thing to do with Bertie Reed, of course, was, just accidentally, of course, was just to happen to mention early on in the lesson yeah. about a motorbike or <laughs> yeah, something. And the whole lesson then was exactly. nothing but motorbikes. Yeah. And uh, we used to do this uh, quite regularly, but he was a grand chap, was Bertie. You were pretty keen on sport as well, weren't you? Yes, I, I must admit I enjoyed my football and I enjoyed athletics and uh, anything that was going really uh, in the sports side, I, I thoroughly enjoyed. And I think it's the same today as it was in them days. If you played sport and you got to play for the school no matter what it was, or representing the school, you seem to get noticed, you know. And and I know even when it came round to um, prefects, the prefects always appeared that they were those who represented the school at something, yes. you know. But then, of course, it was Balakameen after Murray's Road. And then St. Ninian. Yes, yeah. and of course, Balakameen was uh, girls one end and boys the other, and we weren't allowed anywhere you know, near. There was no. a barrier, as it were. Yeah. And uh, the only time we went into the kind of girls' side of the school was the swimming pool. Oh, yeah. Because the swimming pool that was, was in side. the goal, girls' yeah. end. And, uh, you know, it was quite funny, really, because uh, boys and girls just did not mix. No. And I used to have quite a comical uh, conversation about this with Castle Russian because of course Joan went to Castle Russian and she always bestowed the virtues of a mixed school boys and girls together and they got on better and all this and of course I always said no no boys school is what you should have but then it didn't stop us having the odd walk down at lunchtime to Park Road (laughs) (laughs) and once only I ever remember being asked to play in a mixed because, of course, uh, Ramsey Grammar was mixed, Castle Russian was mixed, so they had a mixed hockey oh, team. Oh, yeah, right. And, of course, Park Road couldn't because there was no lads there, mm. and they asked some of us guys whether we would play in this mixed hockey. Yeah. Once and only once. I never, ever played again. I think is the most lethal. <laughs> a girl with a hockey stick... <laughs> My word, yes. <laughs> that was just once. That was it. So you're shaking the farm work off by this time? Not really. I was still keen on farming. The only things that, as I say, that put me off farming was thinning turnips. And uh, then you looked up and there seemed to be as many rows in the field as you started. And your knees with oh, yeah. the stones, even although you had sacks, sacks on your on knees. Your knee, yeah. My word, it was dreadful. Yeah. But I enjoyed the farming, but it was the mechanisation. I think I followed my father in that respect. He wanted to be an engineer. In fact, he wanted to be a marine engineer. We would have loved to have gone to sea to be a marine engineer, but of course his father wouldn't allow him. He had to stay home on the farm. And I think that was the main basis on which he went off to the army. And he broke away from the farming in the family. Now, I was the same. I loved the engineering side, the mechanical, if you like. And the the very things that came out then in that time was machinery for thin turnips, machinery for picking spuds. (laughs) So in other words, you ended up that you developed and put and sold 
machinery yeah. that done all the jobs you disliked. So, <laughs> see, even now we've still got 30-odd acres and we've got a few sheep and a few pigs. And I mean, the interest is still there. Yeah. But I must admit, it's the machinery that always took my eye rather than the, the labour of, of lovers, they used to call it. So this is why you went to become a, uh, an apprentice engineer then? Yes, there was great difficulty then, because you will recall work was not available really on the island. It was in the summer, but in the winter, our menfolk used to have to go off to East Anglia to pick sugar beet. You know, the island just went into nothing happened, even the cinema halls shut, the dance halls shut. The situation was at that time that you went and put your name down for an apprenticeship 12 months before you took your GCEs. Oh, yeah. So, of course, I did that. I put my name down with uh, Collinsons and Cowley because they were an agricultural merchant. They were the Ferguson dealer, you know, and I thought, well, that's the place I would like to be, farming, but on the machinery. Mm. Now, you can imagine my utter disbelief and dismay when 12 months afterwards having done my GCEs I went with my father on the BSA 250 on the pillion by this time we were mobilized (laughs) and uh, went down to Collison's and Cowley's to be told we've decided we're not taking any more apprentice on Mm -hmm. well I was absolutely shattered because as far as I was concerned I was leaving school going straight into work and we were coming up the quayside and my father obviously knew I was uh, upset and we came around the quay and uh, he said to me well what about the Ford people here oh no you know they were just cars and vans and I really wanted you know tractors and combines and uh, well we might as well go and have a you know look in and it was a real experience because we went in You'll remember there were houses going along there. Yeah, uh, on, on the quay. Big, big houses, actually on the bridge, right along the bridge. Yeah. All big houses. And then there was one next to the end before Lake Road where there was an archway going through. There were still rooms above it, but you went through and the old uh, stables were down there. And, of course, that was where the garage was. But in one of the other houses... There was like a showroom. The windows had been put in so you could see a car inside. And we went into the showroom and this elderly gentleman was there with a trilby hat and, you know, a coat tie and all on, brushing up in the showroom. And, of course, my father went up and asked him to see was Mr. Christian about, you know, uh, Mr. Christian. So he said, I'll go and have a look. So he went off, went up these stairs and all about, Five minutes later, a young lady came down and said, oh, are you the gentleman that's waiting to see Mr. Christian? So my father said, yes. So half up the stairs we went, and I'll never forget it, walked into this room, and he was this fella sitting with a trilby hat and a coat on. <laughs> yeah. It was actually Mr. Christian himself oh. <laughs> that had been down brushing up, but that was him. That was yes. old E.B., you know, mm-hmm. old E.B., as, they, as they, they would say. And he said to me, well, what are you doing? What are you being? What do you want to do? And so on. It was a Saturday, right? And he said, well, you be in here at 8 o'clock on Monday morning. Isn't it funny? That is how, as easy as that, how I became connected with, EBs, and then after 32 years or wherever it was, I was still there. But um, again, a marvellous man. I had a wonderful relationship, uh, you know, with Norman, his son as well, because Norman's love again tended to be more agricultural. 
Yeah. Although the cars and the vans were a big, big, massive part of that business, mm. the agricultural side was a part that he really enjoyed. Thank you, Donald Gelling. And that was just part of a much longer conversation between Donald and David Collister that we'll be returning to later in this series. Likes, loves, hopes and dreams. The archive room is full of such stories from some of the island's best-loved personalities. And I'll have another selection for you at this time next week. And so, as we close the door to the archive room, just for now, this is Judith saying thank you for your company this evening, whilst I'm leaving my last word to our favourite radio rambler, Howard Hampton. Till next week, so long, sir. Station Manx Radio